Today's TribCast is presented by St. David's Healthcare. The best is here. Learn more at stdavids.com. Texas talking, oh, what was that that you said? Texas talking, ah, gonna hoop upside your head. Texas talking, tell me who can you trust when Texas guys are in Texas Hi, I'm Neha Jenga of Leander ISD, co-champion of the 2016 National Spelling League. Welcome to this week's TribCast. That's T-R-I-B-C-A-S-T. And now, here's your host, Emily Ramshaw. Thank you. This is Emily Ramshaw here with the TribCast on this first day of June. I'm joined by executive editor Ross Ramsey. That's R-O-S-S. I want to see if you can get through. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I can. Howdy. Uh, uh, reporter Matthew Watkins. Hello. And reporter Morgan Smith. Hello. Uh, did you all perform in a spelling bee in your youth? I failed miserably. I, third, I continue to be a bad speller. Third round, I ran into, you know, couldn't spell went or something, you know. <laughs> I enjoy spelling. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's why nobody likes Morgan. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right, well, I have a feeling that we are going to be doing a lot of talking about bathrooms in the coming months, which is a little bit unfortunate. Um, but I want to sort of get a sense of where we are. Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick held a press conference yesterday, which was Tuesday, uh, to basically say, um, you know, to keep the which bathroom should transgender folks use debate going. What was I think his... he was just trying to elbow his way back into the story. <laughs> I, you know, there were there have been a couple of stories where Dan Patrick wasn't the featured player and um, – Yesterday made him the featured player again. So what's he saying? He's This is basically his shout-out to Fort Worth ISD? Yeah, he was very critical of the superintendent and of the school board in Fort Worth and said, you know, seems to be um, personalizing this to some extent, uh, saying that they should ignore the presidential order. He calls it a presidential order. They should ignore the missive from the federal Obama education administration, department. administration, right. Um, and listen instead to their state officials. And Fort Worth is saying, look, we have a policy here. You guys can litigate it. We'll wait. And, um, that, and I mean, he said that to every school district in the state, actually, that they should ignore these federal guidelines that, that have come down. And he's even gone as far as to ask specifically, in, in the case of Fort Worth, for um, an AG opinion on it. And we know how that AG opinion is <laughs> going to look. I mean, right. well, the AG, the AG from whom he's at, he's seeking an opinion. <laughs> yeah, right. Sued, sued, sued the federal, the federal government. government. So. Is this, I mean, kind of like the same-sex marriage thing where, you know, this ruling, I mean, that, that was a Supreme Court ruling, and for a time Texas elected officials were saying, you know, don't enforce it. Is there is there a similar, um, you know, sort of theme at play here? I think that this is um, a little, a, kind of a bigger gray area because, um, you know, there's a lot of, I think confusion out there about what these federal guidelines were actually telling school districts to do. And, you know, I think it's important to point out that they are non-binding, but there's also, um, you know, there is this threat of losing federal funding, but I've talked to several uh, school lawyers about this um, at this point, and they've all said that, you know, it's a pretty extended process to actually lose federal funding over, um, you know, an issue like this. It involves, you know, investigation. It involves, um, you know, kind of extended negotiations, at least two years. So it's not exactly an imminent threat for school districts. Yeah, I mean, uh, we've seen this with the federal government and Title IX issues and rape on campus, too, where they say you can lose federal funding, but it 
never actually happens. It's more of a, they come in and kind of try to publicly shame you into changing your ways. Right. They're, politically, it works only if it's brinksmanship, only if, only if there are ultimatums. And you've got five months until an election, and this is kind of, at the moment, the leading edge of the culture wars in, in the presidential races. It's, this isn't just Texas. Um, in fact, the New York Times did a front-page piece a couple of Sundays ago that this starts in... Um, I think, it, I think it was North Dakota and has spread around. The education department has been working on this um, policy for a couple of years. This has been a slow boil, you mm-hmm. know, to Morgan's point. And well, and, yeah, they're, trying, they're trying to make it a, you know, an ultimatum and, uh, uh, like I said, a brinksmanship thing. But that's political. Well, and if you had any question that this was politically motivated, it doesn't even feel like this is starting with the school districts. I mean, you know, Morgan, tell us a little bit. So the state's attorney general who is suing the the federal government over this issue, um, he shopped this this, uh, policy around, did he not? Yeah. So last week, um, Attorney General Kim Paxton announced that Texas would be leading a group of of uh, 10 other states that's grown. I think we're at about 14 states that have joined the lawsuit at this point um, in, in challenging the federal government over this. But as a part of the, I guess, the process of setting up that lawsuit, he um, aides from his office visited um, at least two school districts, um, were in communications with them about adopting, uh, officially adopting trans, uh, these um, guidelines that would go contrary to what the federal government handed down. I think what's really interesting is that um, th- one of the school district that it looks like he initially approached declined and they essentially said, you know, there's no reason for us to adopt this policy right now. Our lawyers have told us that uh, what we're doing now is in compliance with what the Obama administration has handed down. And, um, you know, why would we step into this fight that is just going to end up being a huge distraction for our community? So it wasn't that he was looking for school districts that were already contrary to the administration. He was looking for school districts who would take a contrary stand so that he could file a lawsuit up in the Wichita Falls region. Exactly. Because I don't think that many school districts actually even have policies on on this. I mean, you know, it's sort of like they went shopping for the guinea pig here. Right. Yeah, and I, the school district that is also in the Wichita Falls region that is now in the, in the middle of this lawsuit, um, also noteworthy that they do not have any transgender students or, or, or at least are not aware of any transgender students in their district. So this wasn't something that um, emerged out of an issue that they were grappling with. Uh, this, is, this is something purely that is a response to kind of the political conversations that are going on out there. This whole thing, to me, it seems like a political conversation. I mean, I, you know, I don't really see many stakeholders sort of on either side of this issue. It's largely like, you know, you have an AG who seems like he wants to distract, to, to change the subject and get out in front on a social issue. I mean, and, and where is Abbott in all of this? Because it seems like there's a whole lot of bluster coming from Ken Paxton and, and the lieutenant governor and... Yeah. Well, he, he did a classic gubernatorial Bigfoot <laughs> the other day. You know, when Paxton was going to um, announce... I think it was like a two o'clock press conference to say that he was going to sue the federal government over this. Uh, Abbott came out with a big announcement at noon and said, "In two hours, Ken, <laughs> Ken Paxton's Paxton will sue. thank you, Ken, Ken, Ken Paxton. I, yeah. You know, well, I mean, what should we what should we make of that? Right? Yeah, right. He, I mean, just grabbing a piece of the headline. And I mean, you know, Abbott has been supportive of this, and I think that it's kind of a cla- Abbott can fall back on kind of what's been a classic um, position for him talking about federal, you know, the Obama administration's federal overreach. And, you know, you can he can kind of 
change the subject from even talking about the issue of transgender students and where they use the bathroom and just talk about, you know, this is the yet another example of the federal government coming in and telling us telling us what to do when they shouldn't. This is an interesting uh, uh, question on Facebook um, from Jamie Gump, uh, who asks, is Dan Patrick using the bathroom issue to push for more charter schools? Will this help him with his call for vouchers and defunding public schools? That's interesting. I hadn't thought about that as a potential you know, example, but, but maybe so. Thoughts on that? I mean, I think that um, charter schools is a harder argument because they would be, I mean, these are federal guidelines, so they would be subject to the same um, guidelines as, you know, a traditional public school. Um, the voucher question, thats that might be, um, you know, a little bit more of a sell because, you know, anything that is getting parents kind of riled up about, you know, what's going on in their public schools and how, you know, there's no control, um, you know, that could get kind of a more motivated group, um, you know, pushing for, well, we want to we want to have some type of financial support from the state to go to go to a private school. Yep. You know, Patrick brings up school choice at every press conference mm -hmm. on this issue. So, um, you know, he's definitely seems to be, you know, it, whether that's he's trying to tie the two issues together or whether that's just a hobby horse that he wants to keep on the forefront of people's Secret minds. Drinking game somewhere. <laughs> you know, there's, one of the objections to vouchers from the right has been from Kathy Adams and people like that has been that if state or federal money goes yeah, into it. private schools, so will federal regulation and state regulation. Right, so, yeah. I mean, you reopen that too. If, if, you know, if this is a window into a window for people like Patrick into vouchers or into uh, public funding for private schools, then you have to say, well, don't they have to follow the same rules? And then we're having the bathroom fight again. Right. Yeah. Um, well, let's move to another private school, uh, this time Baylor. Uh, last week at this time when we gathered for the TribCast, we were doing a lot of hemming and hawing over Ken Starr's future um, at Baylor and that of the football coach, Art Bryles. Uh, why don't you, Matthew, there have been a lot of developments since then. Why don't you give us the, the headlines? Yeah, well, basically, um, a lot of people have lost their jobs. Uh, Art Bryles, the football coach, has been fired. Uh, Ian McCaw, the athletic director, director, was initially suspended and then resigned a couple days later. And uh, Ken Starr, kind of the only of the uh, big three, the only guy still with a, a job at Baylor, is has lost his job as president but kept his job as chancellor, um, at least for the time being, will remain uh in that kind of figurehead position, plus as a tenured law professor in the law school. I mean, none of those, neither of those sound particularly bad, but is chancellor really like a zero of a job? I mean, it sounds, it sounds like a big title. Yeah, the basic, um, <clears throat> the regents last week said uh, there are no internal operating responsibilities for chancellor. It's basically a fundraising position. And then they also said he'll also work on religious freedom without any kind of elaboration as to what that means, um, presumably using his uh, his legal skills in some way for the university. Um, but I think it's worth pointing out that the last president who uh, went made that move from president to chancellor had left pretty soon after that you know um it, it's it's very possible it's very unclear how how much how long he'll be in that position mm -hmm. and so how much of this this sexual assault on campus scandal falls on star i mean how you know i guess the you know the buck stops here it but, happened while you were in charge right but you know do there have been some reports some investigative reports that have been released now i mean what do we know about about what he knew and did or didn't do sure so after this kind of scandal 
first broke with the story of Sam Ukwachu, the football player who uh, was basically convicted of rape, even though the university investigated and didn't take any uh, of their own punishment against him. Uh, he he announced that this uh, law firm was going to look into this case, how they were handling these cases. That report came out last week, which was kind of what precipitated all this action. Um, and basically, the report found that. Um, it didn't name any names, so it didn't say Star knew about this or Star didn't do this or this or this. But it basically was incredibly damning of the school's procedures and how to handle these um, cases. Basically, the federal government has told universities that they need to proactively investigate, take action whenever there's been an accusation of sexual assault against a student. Um, the burden of proof is lower than the criminal courts. Um, they also need to take care of the student, uh, provide her counseling, uh, him or her counseling, and uh, give her you know, what she needs in order to continue her education. Um, the Baylor report found that the investigations were pretty much useless, and the students were basically being, you know, uh, sometimes intimidated uh, for uh, bringing their uh, allegations forward. And in a so, couple of cases, they said that the school actually contributed to the problem. That's right. right that's right. right. So Star has kind of come out since then and said, I didn't know about any of these cases until last, last fall. Um, but in some ways, that's kind of beside the point because, you know, he's responsible for for making sure these systems are in place in order to, you know, protect students on campus. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and clearly those systems were not there. Right. I mean, how does this complicate questions about STARS legacy? Um, you had a really good story on Tuesday just about sort of looking at how many advances Baylor has made in the last several years. I mean, talk us through that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, people were calling this kind of the golden age of Baylor. Um, since he's come in, uh, the football team, which I don't know how much credit he gets for that, but the football team has been, you know, incredible for Baylor standards. Um, and that is kind of permeated to the rest of the university. F fundraising has been at an all-time high. Uh, Applications, enrollment have been at all-time highs. Um, they're climbing in the U.S. news uh, rankings and other rankings. Research expenditure or research funding doubled uh, during his time there. Uh, so, I mean, that's all pretty huge, and it's really kind of Baylor on. Uh, is relevant on has been relevant on a national level in a way that it hadn't been, you know, a decade ago. Mm -hmm. um, and so he was a hero on campus. Uh, there's no question about that. The students loved him. He had a great relationship with the faculty. And I think that's one of the reasons this has been so hard for the school is, is now they're kind of at this point where all this kind of goodwill, the, the story of Baylor was a really positive story up until a few months ago. And right. now, you know, there's basically national scorn as, as to how they've handled this situation. Right. On Facebook, Brian Dunn asks, do you feel that the investigative report that was released and Baylor's public statements have been adequately transparent? I feel like we're taking Baylor's word for it that Star being retained and Bryles being fired are equally justified. That is, I, I think the, if you read that report, Bryles being, there's kind of no way they could have kept Bryles on as coach. You know, there were stories about the football staff meeting with, uh, women who had accused football players of rape, in some cases kind of trying to discourage them to go through the normal reporting methods. Um, and, uh, you know, in other cases, giving them the impression that they were going to take this to the university level and then not actually doing it. Mm -hmm. um, so, I, yeah, Bryle staying on, I don't think there's any way they could have 
done anything differently there. The, but the questions of transparency, I think, are legitimate ones because, like I said earlier, there are no names mentioned in the report. It's all staff and people like this. Um, we we don't know. Not everyone in the football staff has been fired. There's still questions about what other people may or may not have known, and I think that's a big, big question that we don't know the answer to. I think it's possible, you know. The, the story isn't over now, and things are going to kind of keep playing out. Um, well, it's, a, it's a litigation roadmap. Exactly. Right? Exactly. And, you know, some of, the, some of their lack of transparency was, you know, don't necessarily name all the people whose names are going on the lawsuits. Mm-hmm. But I'm sure there are a lot of, you know, lawyers poking at this. And, you know, you have, you know, you have pretty clear indications in that report of civil damages. Right. And, Oh, criminal for sure. damages for right? sure so. i mean is there irony here that you know ken Starr is known for his incredibly thorough investigation into this you know a sex scandal in the white house but but is largely accused of sort of looking the other way in this case i think the question answers it <laughs> <laughs> i mean there's definitely a huge blind spot at baylor for this or there was and you know a lot of the things that I've seen kind of coming internally, even when they hired a Title IX coordinator in 2014, uh, it was in the job description. Basically, there is a strong belief among people at Baylor, or there was, that this kind of thing doesn't happen at Baylor. That, you know, this is a school that banned dancing on campus <laughs> until the 1990s. It's like you know? footloose. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. There were people who uh, I think probably believed that there wasn't that much sex going on at Baylor, let alone sexual assault. and. <clears throat> so uh, you talk about uh, Star. I mean, it really seems like, and whether that the administration at Baylor just didn't even really recognize that this was an issue that they needed to be thinking about, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, so. Did he have the ability? Clearly, he has an ability to investigate issues of sexual misconduct. <laughs> right. uh, but I, I, it's not really clear whether he even really recognized that that was part of his job or something that needed to be happening at Baylor. Mm-hmm. Um, well, folks, we are taking comments and questions via Facebook, so hit us up if you have more. one more before we change topics, and that is, is there a chance Ken Starr might take a shot at Texas Ad- Attorney General in two years? I can't imagine. I mean, this would be a really tough thing. You know, as a matter of electoral politics, this, this is a perfect setup for an opponent. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just fraught with um, all kinds of problems, and you can imagine the ads. You can imagine, you know, um, you know, potentially some of the women who were victimized here, mm-hmm. you know, becoming testimony against this candidate. I can't imagine anything like that. Yeah. He's also been uh, saying some nice things about Democrats lately, which probably wouldn't help as well. Oh yes, remind us what some of those things are. Yeah, well, he was very complimentary of Bill. It was funny because the day that the kind of news <laughs> broke out that he was going to get <laughs> that he was going to get timed. Uh, you know, fired, or I guess the report was that he was going to get fired. It kind of turned out a little bit differently than that. But uh, there was a story in the New York Times basically about him talking about how great of a politician Bill Clinton was and how, uh, you know, the, the discourse, he was really disappointed in how the political discourse has kind of gone down the drain in, in, in recent years, which a lot of people found pretty interesting given the... Yeah, what do you think happened? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, uh, but yeah, you know, the, the guy basically... Public enemy number one to the Clinton administration was was saying a lot of nice things about Bill Clinton, which is interesting. Well, speaking of the Clintons, uh, Hillary Clinton has had some curious things to say about Texas in uh, in recent days. Anyone want to take this one on? We can win. We can win, she said. And, you know, said the Democrats every two years. Um, 
They haven't won in a long, long time. The last time a Democrat won a presidential race in Texas was Jimmy Carter in 1976. It was the only hiccup between Nixon and here. Um, the only times Democrats have come close in presidential elections in Texas was when there were significant, strong, independent candidates. George Wallace um, kept everybody below 50 percent. Um, and um, Ross Perot in 1992 kept both Bill Clinton and George Bush low. In fact, George Bush, this is the George Bush the first, um, George the one, um, <laughs> was only 41 percent in his home state that year. So, you know, a Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump thing, if it followed the historical trend, would only be a close race if there were an independent candidate of some strength in the race. And by of some strength, I'm talking about 19 or 20 percent. And Mark Cuban decided not to run. Mark Cuban decided <laughs> not to run. And, you know, although he did offer himself as vice president to either of them, if they will listen <laughs> to him. Talk about opportunistic. Like, I, want, I, want to, I want to drive from the passenger seat. Yeah, right. Uh, uh, but, I mean, her comments specifically were about, Don, you know, with Donald Trump as the nominee, that, you know, I, I think it was like Texas exclamation point. You know, Texas is in play. It, it takes an extraordinary thing to change a trend line in a place like Texas. You know, you have to have something remarkable happen. A really good example of this is California. You know, it's a democratic state and then Arnold Schwarzenegger runs and you have this convoluted, you know, let's knock the let's knock the existing governor out and have a special election and everybody from, you know, actors to bodybuilders to um, to I think there was a strip joint owner that that election was crazy. You have something bizarre happen and it upsets the political norm. I think what she's talking about here is that Trump may be something extraordinary enough to upset the political norm, it would be an earthquake. Mm -hmm. the, the dream is that he has angered Hispanics so much, the kind of elusive Hispanic vote in Texas that everyone claims if we can just get out Hispanics. If only. The sleeping giant. Yeah, right. the sleeping right. giant. The sleeping and giant that has remained dormant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I can see why she would think that that's possible, but I think the people in Texas who have been following elections for a long time, right, say that's a lot Hogwash. easier said than done. It's you know it's not impossible. You can't ever say it's impossible, but it's just such a it's leap. pretty impossible. It's such a it would be <laughs> such a change in Texas politics. It would be a complete change of direction. And um, she knows it's not possible. Well, I she mean, knows it, Texas it, politics really well. You know, right. she and her husband did ground level politics here from McGovern back in the day. Uh, one of those elections at the beginning of the Republican streak that still exists. <laughs> um, so she knows she knows what the odds are, and she knows that the Hispanic uh, population is young enough that it hasn't really started voting yet. We don't really know whether this is going to be a voting population or not. Right now, it's voting kind of according to its age, and and not necessarily you know race or ethnicity. But unless something really changes, or unless a bunch of Republicans just decide, you know, I'd rather go fishing. Um, it's going to be a 20-point race. It seems like it could also be possible that she's trying to expand the map because she has so much, so many more resources, so much more money than Trump does in order to run this race, right? right. So the thinking would be Texas is an incredibly expensive state to campaign in. And so if, if Trump ha is starting to worry that he might have to defend it, then that spreads out his already limited resources and gives him less money to spend in the other states if, he wants to If run. Trump is fighting to win Texas, he's already lost the race. I was going to say, he's I mean, not even going to have to lift a finger here. You know, Trump, yeah. the, the way the electoral map works right now, Trump has to flip blue states. If he's worried about red states, he's dead. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, speaking of November, uh, Ross, it's only June, but you 
are so early, so on the ball that you already had a column this uh, this week telling us what the most it's, competitive races are going to be in November. It's so easy to do now because redistricting is so determinative that you can tell at the beginning of a year, um, you know, like we did. I think if you go back, I wrote a column that said 90 of these on filing day that said 90 of these people have already been elected in the mm -hmm. Texas House, 90 members of the 150 member House. Now we're down to about 10. Um, if you look at most of the political districts in Texas for Congress, for the Senate, for the House, for the State Board of Education, they were drawn to favor either the Democrats or the Republicans, and so they're not really contestable in November. Um, so we're down to just a handful of races um, that will be. There's only one congressional race, CD23, we've talked about a lot. This is Will Hurd defending against uh, Pete Gallego, who he knocked off. It's a district that goes all the way from San Antonio to El Paso. And What's going to happen in this one? It's interesting because it's going to be a national race. And I think both of the candidates are going to try to hang the other's presidential candidate around their neck. You know, Pete right. Gallego is going to try to make Will Hurd Donald Trump's running mate. Will Hurd is going to try to make Pete Gallego <laughs> be a bad choice. <laughs> Hillary Clinton's running <laughs> yeah. mate. I mean, right. you know, it's it's um, they're both going to have to answer for the disliked person at the mm -hmm. top of their ticket. Um, and it's, you know, it's a big, important swing district. And it's not only a big swing district in Texas, but it's a swing district that's important nationally. And, and that's just quickly, that's a district that tends to do well in pres uh, for Democrats in presidential it, years? Yeah, it's a trout on a sidewalk. Every right. two years it goes D or R or D or R. It a goes, trout on the sidewalk? It goes, yeah, throw a trout on the sidewalk. Flips. <laughs> uh, you've never done that? This is like your turnip truck idioms. You, 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 Turtle you, on a fence You, Virginia, post. don't throw your trouts on sidewalk. <laughs> that's true. It, it, goes, it goes Democratic every every presidential election year it goes republican every gubernatorial election year that has to do with turnout in texas and what's you know gubernatorial years are redder and then we've got a series of house and house races none of the senate races are contested really i mean they are contested there will be two candidates on the ballot right but they're mostly and, done for and like the presidential race that we just got through talking about it's always possible that these will go against but something extraordinary would have to happen. I always um, feel like there are more surprises in the primaries in Texas than there ever are in the general. Well, that's what happens when yeah. you draw the maps so that only the Republicans can win a particular district or only the Democrats can win another one. All of the really hard-fought contests are in the primaries and the runoffs. And mm -hmm. we just got out of the, for the candidates at the state level, the busiest and most risky part of the election year. Right. All right. So give us a couple more of the, the tough so, house races. So, um, you know, it's it's a relatively small list. House District 23 in Corpus Christi, a freshman legislator against a former legislator. Um, 43 down in Kingsville is a, one of the rare swing districts in Texas. J.M. Lozano is trying to defend himself again. Jimmy Don Acock left his seat in Central Texas. There's a, a two-party battle for that. Uh, Joe Moody in El Paso has a district that has swung Republican a couple of times. He replaced a Republican named D. Margo and is defending that. Rodney Anderson in uh, the Dallas-Fort Worth area is in a district that has gone back and forth. Linda Harper-Brown had it. Rodney Anderson has it now. Um, Linda Coop in Dallas will be defending herself, former city councilwoman. She was on the city council when I was covering district. it. Uh, Ken Sheets and Cindy Burkett, who are side-by-side -side districts, th these are on the watch list every year. These are two of the swing districts. They've both been pretty good at defending them, and, and they're both sort of battle-hardened. You know, they've done this two or three times. They know how to do it, but they're on the list again. Uh, Rick Galindo in San Antonio is one of two House Republicans who's in a district that always votes for the Democrats. Mm -hmm. Sort of like, you know, um, they're they're kind of, you know, running around in a red jersey in a, in a blue crowd. 
Uh, the other one is Gilbert Pena from Pasadena. He's going to face Marianne Perez, who he beat a couple of years ago. Um, that's about it. Mm-hmm. You know, so from, a, from this, a race yeah. with 218 races on it, th- those are the those are the really contested ones. So, do we go into next session with any sea changes at all in either chamber? No, they'll both be you know numerically about where they are mm-hmm. now. Um, the changes in the house will be within the composition of the house. A couple of people there, a couple of people here. But it's the kind of thing that unless you're looking really, really closely or unless your cousin is one of the members, you don't really notice. Sounds good. All right, well, if you'd like to tell us about one of your cousins running for office, you can email us at tribcast at texastribune.org. You can also sign up for Tribcast alerts at texastribune.org slash tribcast. Uh, thanks to Shiny Ribs, as always, for doing our music. And on behalf of Ross, Morgan, Matthew, our producers, Todd and Rodney, this is Emily. Thanks for listening. Texas talking. Texas talking. Texas talking. Texas talking. Texas talking. It's not dead. It's very much alive.